0: Well, a question for you as we begin. Uh, Are you good at waiting patiently? Are you good at waiting patiently? Oh, a few hands up. Riri Riri thinks he's good at waiting patiently. Kyle? Kyle thinks he's good at waiting patiently. Well, it's only two weeks to go until we get to Christmas. Are you waiting patiently? How good are you? Uh, Let me tell you a story from when I was growing up. Uh, My sister and I... We were terrible at waiting patiently. Absolutely terrible. Uh, My sister in particular, sorry to dob my sister in it. Uh, One year my sister was so impatient, she went round the house looking for presents. Have you ever done that? Very bad thing to do. She went round the house, actually she found some. She opened them. She told me what was in my presents because she opened mine as well as her own. You can just guess how much trouble she got in for that. Well, if you think waiting patiently for Christmas is hard, well, in our Bible reading today, God's people have been waiting. They've been waiting, actually, for 400 years since the end of the Old Testament for God to keep his promises. I'm going to read to you the words with which the Old Testament ends, because it's relevant for our our, um, Bible reading that we've had this morning. This is how the Old Testament ends. This is from Malachi, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Malachi writes this. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. And so the Old Testament closes. God is coming. That's what that Malachi passage means. God is going to come into his world. And it will be a great day, but it will also be a terrible day. A great day if you're ready, a terrible day if you're not. And so God promises to send someone ahead in advance To help to get his people ready. That's how the Old Testament ends. And so God's people start the long, long wait. Uh, If you've closed your Bibles, it would be great to open them again to the start of Luke's Gospel on page 1023. And that's where we're going to pick up the story in verse 5. Luke introduces us to two people. uh, A godly couple an elderly priest called Zechariah, and his wife Elizabeth. Uh, but they have something in common with Abraham and Sarah, who we've been thinking about in our, our Bible series in Abraham, in Genesis. They too have been suffering from the pain of childlessness. It's probably been harder for them. They, they don't have a, a promise from God to say that, that their family is going to have more descendants in than the stars of the, in the sky. For them, it's just been the long, quiet shadow of sadness that infertility can bring. But for Zechariah, today is not a day for, for dwelling on such things. Um, today, actually, is the high point of his priestly career. Today, he's on duty at the temple in Jerusalem, and we're told that the lot has fallen to him, and today he gets to be the one who burns the incense in the temple. Now, we might not realise how big a deal that was. Um, But let me try and fill you in. Most of what's going on at the temple takes place outside. Uh, That's where the people are, where most of the priests are. It's where the animal sacrifices are happening. But one priest gets to actually go inside the temple, into the holy place. In front of him, there's the big curtain that separated off the most holy place, he's not allowed in there, Uh, but to one side there's the table that's got bread on it, there's the golden lamp which is always burning, and there's the altar of incense. And at the climax of the service outside, he gets to light the incense and give that sweet-smelling aroma of the burning incense that, that sort of surrounds the prayers and the worship that's being offered. And this was such an honour that apparently a priest got to do that only once in their life. Once they'd done it, they weren't allowed to do it again. And actually for some priests, they'd never get to do it at all. If the lot never fell to them, uh, they'd never get to do it. So here's Zechariah. It's his big day. And he's standing there. He's in the lonely quiet of the holy place. He's listening carefully to the muffled sounds of what's going on outside. He's waiting for the right moment to light the incense. And as he's waiting in the quiet, bang, all of a sudden, right next to him, right next to the altar of incense, there's an angel. When Luke says that Zechariah was startled, I think it might be a little bit of a dramatic (laughs) understatement. I think about to go into cardiac arrest (laughs) might have been a bit closer to the truth. Uh, We don't know exactly what an an angel would look like, Uh, but here, as elsewhere, the angel's opening words are, do not be afraid, which is quite understandable, given that Zechariah is absolutely terrified. But then when the angel speaks, what he says is an even bigger shock than his appearance. Let me paraphrase what um, the angel says Uh, in verses 13 onwards. He says, Zechariah, you're going to have a baby. Even though you're really, really old, uh, God is going to miraculously give you a baby. And you're going to call him John. John means God has been gracious. Appropriate name. Uh, This baby John is going to be a joy for him and Elizabeth. Well, no surprises there. But also for all of God's people. He's going to be great in God's eyes. He's going to be the kind of godly man that Israel hasn't seen for 400 years. And John is going to be like Elijah. Uh, He's going to do that job of speaking to God's people when they're far away from him. That's what Elijah had to do uh, if you want to go and look up his story. Uh, The people have been wandering away from God, and Elijah's job was to draw them back again. And John is going to do a job like that. He's going to be that Elijah figure that God had promised through Malachi 400 years earlier. It's no accident that the angel is almost exactly quoting the end of Malachi when he's describing John. Well, just ponder for a minute what that means. If John is the Elijah figure, and his job is to get people ready for God's arrival, well, that means that God is coming. It means that God is going to come into his world, and he's coming soon. 400 years of waiting, but it's coming to an end. So just feel the weight of Gabriel's words for a minute. If the first bit of the Malachi promise is coming true... John is coming as Elijah, then the second part of that promise is coming true as well. It means that God is coming into his world. And Luke's going to go on and tell us about that, that God is coming as another baby, Jesus. But if the people are going to be ready for when Jesus arrives, they're going to need to listen to John. Because if we're honest... In our natural state, we're not ready. We're not ready for God. We might not like to hear it, but we have cold, hard hearts. We're sinful, and we're disobedient towards God. Well, John's job was to start the work of changing that by calling people to repent, to turn away from their sin and then baptising them. His job is to call us back to the wisdom of going God's way, verse 17, instead of going our own way, to show us where we're disobedient to what God's commanded us in the Bible. And as our relationship with God warms up, then our relationships with one another are going to warm up as well. Parents to children, children to parents. That's what that bit at the end of Malachi means. Turning the hearts of children back to their parents and parents to children. So let's just think for a minute what that's going to mean for us. Well, We need to listen uh, to John's message as well. We, we might be living after Jesus has come the first time, but we too are also waiting for Jesus to come into his world. We're waiting for Jesus' return. And so John's arrival asks the same questions of us, actually. Are we ready for Jesus' arrival? In our hearts, do we really believe that going God's way is the wisest way to live? Or do we think it's better to go with what we think is best? Are we trying to find out what God's way is by opening our Bibles and reading them. We're very privileged, actually, in the English-speaking word. There are loads and loads of resources that we have uh, to help us. Um, We've been doing various things um, at breakfast as a family to help us to get into God's Word. There's loads of stuff that you can use. Do come and talk to me or one of the other elders if you'd like to, to find out what sorts of resources you can use to help you to open the Bible and get into reading it. Or are there ways that we're knowingly disobedient to what God has commanded us? That we're doing what God says is wrong, or not doing what God says we should do? Well, if we're going to listen to John, then he would tell us that it's time to repent, to turn around and to change. We need to get ready because God is coming. Or do we have relationships that are marred by The coldness of our hearts. So easy, isn't it? So therefore, do we need to ask for God's help? To warm our hearts, turn us back to those who we should be caring for. We need to be ready for God's coming. It's been a long wait, but God is coming. And John's job is to get us ready for it. Wow. So it's been a huge message from the angel to Zechariah. So what does Zechariah respond? How does he respond when we're looking at verses 18 to 22? Does he say, wow, that's great, thank you, I can't wait to tell everybody. Uh, No. Actually, he says something more along the lines of, I don't really believe you, prove it. Little hint, that's the wrong answer. You can almost hear the indignation in the angel's response. Uh, Listen to what he says. Let me read it again. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. This isn't just any old angel, this is Gabriel. Gabriel's turned up before in the Bible. This is the Gabriel who appeared to Daniel back in Daniel chapter 8. similar kind of scene, actually, when he he meets Daniel. Uh, But Gabriel stands in God's presence. In other words, he's a trusted confidant. He gets to hear what's going on in the very inner throne room with God. And he's God's trusted go-to spokesman for proclaiming important events. That's what uh, Gabriel does for Daniel. And when that happens, Daniel Daniel believes him without question. But Zechariah doesn't. And as a consequence, Zechariah is told that he will not speak again until the baby is born. Well, it sounds harsh, doesn't it? But just feel the weight of Gabriel's words again. Gabriel says his words will come true at their proper time. Because they are not just his words. These are God's words. Gabriel has been sent to Zechariah with a message from God. Not listening to Gabriel means not listening to God. And Gabriel's message is good news. This is gospel. It's the beginning of the gospel about Jesus. If Zechariah isn't prepared to listen to that, then Gabriel says no one is going to be able to listen to Zechariah, at least not for a while. And Zechariah should have known better, shouldn't he? He knew what God had promised in the Old Testament through prophets like Malachi. But I guess, I guess it was just that God's people had been waiting for so long. Maybe Zechariah had started to feel like God had forgotten. But Zechariah's own name means the Lord has remembered. God hasn't forgotten. And Gabriel says to Zechariah that he's come in response to to Zechariah's own prayer in verse 13. I guess Zechariah's been praying about their childlessness... Had he thought that God had forgotten about that as well? Through all those long, long years of painful childlessness? No, God hasn't forgotten. The Lord has remembered. Well, eventually Zechariah emerges from the temple and he has a slightly bizarre hand-wavy game of charades and manages to communicate what's happened to him inside the temple. Um, I guess he never actually got to burn the incense Poor old Zechariah, misses out on his big day. Um, More positively though, it it looks like Zechariah's punishment, harsh though it seems, has had some kind of restorative effect on his faith. Uh, We'll find out more about this in the the sermons to come. Neil, I'm looking at you because you get to preach on this bit. Uh, For nine months his enforced silence reminds him of God's undoubted power to do what he has promised to do, that his words will come true. And eventually, as Gabriel says, that happens. His words come true. John is born. Zechariah's doubts are gone at that stage. He speaks again. It's interesting, by contrast, that his wife Elizabeth, her response to all of this is much, much better than Zechariah's. She says, The Lord has done this for me. In these days he has shown his favour and taken away my disgrace among the people. That's what she says in verse 25. And actually, it's the beginning of so much more than just that. It's not just God showing his favour to Zechariah and Elizabeth, although it is that. It's the beginning of God showing his favour to the whole world. And removing not just the pain and sorrow of childlessness but actually removing the disgrace of our sinfulness as Jesus comes to live and die, laying down his life in our place, paying the penalty for our sin and bringing us new life, not just the new life of a a new baby, but eternal life for anyone who will turn to Jesus in repentance and faith. So then, what about us? What's our response going to be like? I guess we have a choice, don't we? Are we going to be disbelieving like Zechariah? Doubting that God will keep his promises? I guess if I'm honest, I have to say sometimes yes. I'm a bit like that. Especially if we have to wait for a long time. Or when the fulfilment of God's promises look unlikely. Zechariah doubts that God will give him a baby because of his age. It's been a long wait and it looks really unlikely that that promise will come true. And we too are waiting, aren't we? We're waiting for Jesus' return. Do we doubt that Jesus will come back because we've been waiting for such a long time? I guess sometimes we can. Have we stopped expecting that Jesus will come into his world again? Are we really living like we believe that Jesus will return? He could come back this afternoon. Are we really living like that? Are we putting off sin? Are we telling other people about Jesus' return as judge? Living with that kind of urgency that he's coming back? Do we trust God's promises to build his church when... We look around us in this country and it seems to look a little bit unlikely, in the Western world at least. It means we can doubt God's promises sometimes. Or do we trust God's promise to be at work changing us, slowly chipping away at our sin and our cold-heartedness, doing that job that John was going to do, getting us ready for Jesus' return? Well, if I'm feeling like that, and I guess sometimes I do, I need to remember Gabriel's words. God's words will come true at their appointed time. And that means Jesus will return at the right time. Jesus will build his church and it will be complete. And we will be made ready for him when he returns. So actually, we can respond with thankfulness and faith like Elizabeth does, saying, God has done this for me. He's shown me favor. He's taken away my disgrace. And I can trust him for the rest as well. She then went out and told people around her what God had done for her. I wonder what opportunities are there for us this Christmas to do the same and to be like Elizabeth. Neil was telling us about some of the things that are going to be going on Uh, in and around church over over the next couple of weeks. Actually, this is one of the easiest times of year to tell people about what God has done for us and to rejoice in it. So let us be like Elizabeth and do that. Well, maybe after all of that, still, if we're honest in our hearts, we're still thinking we've got a few doubts and a few uncertainties. Well, fortunately, if you are like that, then Luke is here to help us. So final point, and much more briefly. Let's look back at verses 1 to 4. You might have noticed I skipped over them. I did that on purpose. Um, But I, I did that because I think, actually, they're a real help if we are feeling a little bit guilty or a little bit unsure, and we share maybe in some of Zechariah's doubts. So let me just read verses 1 to 4 to you again. It says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. Well, we might not know very much about this Theophilus chap, but he's a lot like us. He's heard the good news about Jesus. He wasn't actually there to see it himself firsthand. And so I guess like us, he has doubts from time to time. And so his friend Luke wants to help him out. And in the process, he helps us out as well, because he wants to help us to know the certainty of the truth about Jesus. So look at what Luke says. He says that the story about Jesus that Theophilus has heard, and that other people have heard, actually comes from eyewitnesses to the events in verse 2. People who actually saw and heard it for themselves. He says that lots of people have tried to write that down, uh, but not satisfied with that. Luke himself has decided that he's going to investigate it all carefully in verse 3 he's going to read what other people have written he's going to talk to the eyewitnesses he's going to find out what impact knowing Jesus has had on the lives of other people and then he's going to write down his own orderly account and he's doing that so that we can be certain that what we read is true I read an article on the internet it was on Newsround actually uh, about a tomato that had been lost in space for eight months. <laughs> yep. Apparently, astronauts on the International Space Station had been growing tomatoes as part of an experiment, and one of the tomatoes had gone missing. Now, the other astronauts apparently blamed one of their colleagues for eating it. They weren't <laughs> supposed to eat them because it's part of an experiment. Um, they thought he got hungry or something, I don't know. Uh, he denied it, and... Um, but the, um, the person writing the article wanted to find out what had happened. He'd spoken to the astronauts involved, interviewed them, and it turned out that the next crew on the International Space Station eventually had, had searched around and found, managed to find this missing tomato which had sort of floated off in the weightlessness of, of space and got lodged in some corner somewhere. And so now we know the truth. Actually, no one had eaten the tomato. The a- astronaut was innocent. And we know that because of the eyewitness accounts. It's a silly story, I know. But it's to try and illustrate that this is kind of what Luke has done for us. He's talked to the eyewitnesses, he's found out the truth, so that we know that what we read really is true. And for the next few weeks, we're going to carry on reading through these early chapters in Luke's account. Gabriel's going to turn up again, there's going to be a promise of another miraculous baby, Jesus in this case. Uh, There are going to be more angels, there are going to be shepherds, there are going to be songs, all pointing us to what Jesus is going to do when he grows up. We'll see Gabriel's words to Zechariah coming true where John is born, although we actually have to wait till Christmas Eve till we get to that point. Um, But as we do, as we read through all of those things over the next few weeks... Let's remember that Luke isn't just making this stuff up. These are eyewitness accounts. This isn't just a nice fluffy story that we can tell at Christmas time to make ourselves feel happier. These are eyewitness accounts. He's investigated carefully so that we can know the certainty of what we've been taught. So we need to listen up. Over the next few weeks we need to listen up and we need to know the certainty of what Luke is saying to us. It's been a long wait, but God is coming. And John's job is going to be to get us ready for that by helping us to repent. So are there things that we need to change to become wiser and more obedient to God's commands? Are there relationships where we need God's help to warm our hearts, turn our hearts away from ourselves and towards the people we should be loving? And we shouldn't be doubting God's promises like Zechariah. But we should be thanking God for them, like Elizabeth. So remember Gabriel's words. God's words will come true at their appointed time. Jesus will return at the right time. His church will be complete. We'll be ready for him. So let's pray. Give thanks to him. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you keep your promises. Thank you that what you say will come true. At the appointed time. Thank you that you were getting people ready for Jesus' arrival. By sending John. And thank you. That as we listen to John as well. You can get us ready. For Jesus' return. In Jesus' name. Amen.